welcome everyone to the Boston Faith and Justice Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. Elizabeth and I are here today and, you know, just reflecting on the seasons changing, you know, not quite the fall, but going back into the school. Um, And so, you know, later on, we'll hear a little bit in the podcast from my husband, Jonathan Long, who is in the field of education, you know, talking about general, you know, education, justice, school to prison pipeline and all those things. Um, But Elizabeth and I are just going to be chatting about what it's like for young people going back to school, her children and going to college and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, it's definitely back to school season. Like my, I mean, this is probably my age demographic too. Like my feeds are just covered with people's children's first day of school, right? Like first and second grade or like whatever, off to college. So it definitely puts you in that mindset, even though, as you noted, we're not quite done with summer. I always kind of reluctantly let go of the summer as much as I love the fall. It's such a nice time when it's not a million degrees, which actually I think it's going to be like a million degrees next week. So I guess I'm getting my wish. Um, But yeah, so Ivy and I were just talking before we started about back to school being front and center in my house now. My younger daughter started high school yesterday, and on Saturday, we're bringing my older daughter to college, so I have two freshmen, um, and I'm not, I have lots of feelings about it, but we'll just focus on the, the good things. I mean, it's obviously, it's all fun and awesome, and what a privilege that they can be in having those experiences, but yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of like logistics too. Like just this morning, of course, it was this morning before we headed off to the bus. It was like, here, fill out these health forms and these data forms, which I'm like, is it 2023? Like, why am I so filling this paper out? And literally there are two papers side by side and I'm putting the same exact information on both pieces of paper and sending it to the same school with the same child. And I was like, I feel like there could be a better system, but whatever, we'll just keep filling out all of this information. So yeah, so back to school's got got a lot of, it's got the emotions and also the logistical, practical things that are time-sucking. Yes. And, you know, as I was driving yesterday, I'm like, why is there so much traffic? And then I'm like, oh, it's back to school time and school buses and people out on the road. So, you know, there's so many different layers of back to school season. And, you know, as I was saying, my nephew, who's turning 13 in, in a couple of weeks, um, started the seventh grade yesterday. And, you know, even though it's not my own child, I'm like, my baby is growing up. Um, but then, you know, my husband just recently started a new position at a high school in Boston, Match Charter School, which I'm sure we'll hear more about in a little bit. Um, but for him, you know, just being so excited and starting a new position and meeting new young people and, and things like that. So it's a, it's an exciting time, um, but lots of different things that go into the puzzle for sure. Yes. I feel like traffic is a big thing to them. Like, yes, that's such a big, again, there are these like emotional markers, these practical markers, and then these just like hassles around going around town and yeah. in our, so I live in Milford, Massachusetts, which is a, a suburb, um, And I had to, of course, the first day of school, my daughter forgot her volleyball sneaker. She's on the volleyball team. And I get a text. First of all, my phone's about to die. So we can no longer communicate. Her phone is about to die. So she can no longer communicate, but she needs her volleyball shoes. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I literally have never been inside this school. Like, I don't even know what door that. And also, like, is that what I'm doing on your first day of school? Like, going to the office, being like, bring my daughter her sneakers. Anyway, so we worked it out before the phone died that I was going to drop them off after school when practice was starting. So I'm like, I don't know what that's going to look like traffic wise. I sat at a light, the light right before the school 
through five cycles because I think school had just gotten, so the buses must have been working through and then parents are going to pick up and coming from, it was just like, I'm like, this is, this is what I, we do for our children who forget their sneakers. I was like, you know what, from now on, how about you just wear what you have on or remember your shoes. <laughs> but I'm so not that parent. Like I, I will bring them again if she forgets them, but I try to be like, who need to be responsible. But, you know, there's a lot going on for the kids, too. But anyway, that made me think of both traffic and just the life shifts of now that my kids are back doing the school thing as opposed to the summer thing. It's all it's all different. I know. And I feel like summer just flew by. And although, you know, there were so many great things packed into it, you know, getting married, of course, but also (laughs) no big deal. But also, um, you know, with all of the micas that we did and stuff. So I'm still soaking in a lot from the summer for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like the summer is definitely like a very specific season. I mean, they all are, but like the summer just looks different. And for us organizationally, it is historically when we do our micas and we had our biggest one this summer with 66 participants, which was logistically a little crazy, but was such a tremendous experience. Um, And then another youth one and a a multi-generational one. Like, yeah, it is fun to kind of look back and think about, okay, now that we have a little breathing room in perspective, like... Yeah, there's a lot that went on this summer and some people got married and just different vacations. And yeah, it was, I think it was good for me. There was definitely a balance of rest and work. I think I I kind of got that in July was mostly like, let's do the micas and focus on that. And then able to take a family vacation on the Cape um, in August, which was awesome. As you know, I probably have talked about it every day since I got back because um, we had a house on the water, well, water view. And I feel like that's just so restorative. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, just thinking ahead to some of the things we have coming up, our Micah-esque, you know, few days as we partner with um, The Send in in their, you know, three-day outreach and service learning opportunities gearing up for their conference on September 16th, I believe it is. Um, But also, you know, for that, we're doing a collection supporting Jasmine Grace Outreach, the Pine Street Inn, and Straight Ahead Ministries, um, which I also wear a hat there too, as many of of you know. Um, And so we are doing a drive. There'll be a few different um, Dropbox drop off locations, excuse me, um, that we can put some more information when this podcast airs. But um, we are collecting school supplies. So in the essence of school, we'll be collecting, you know, backpacks and folders and pencils and all of those fun things for the young people that I work with at Straight Ahead Ministries. Yeah, that's that's a great reminder. I think Again, there's in organizational work, there's seasons too. And so like, yeah, this is our season. We're sort of gearing up to do a whole new set of things. And the SEND is a unique one that we're doing. It's an an international organization coming to Boston to do some great things. But yeah, we're able to partner and sort of take our MICA concept and give little bite-sized experiences with organizations that we really believe in, which including Straight Ahead. um, And we are doing that collection. So it's a good reminder to find that on our social media. Like you said, we'll post it with the podcast, but we really need people's help. We're collecting for um, to make bags for women um, in vulnerable situations with Jasmine Grace. Um, The Pine Street Inn has a great program where you can put bags together that their staff actually takes out to find clients that they haven't seen in a while. So it's kind of your standard things that you would want to provide for people um, living on the streets and then straight ahead, which is a back to school thing appropriate for this season, especially. So we're hoping that our community can step up and help us collect those things. And then we'll be putting them together with volunteers through the send and hearing from people from the organizations like yourself. Yes. 
Absolutely. And just something that just, you know, popped on my spirit, um, you know, praying for young people in their transitions into school, but also in the transition of seasons and those that are unhoused, you know, as we not talking about winter yet, but, you know, just the changing of seasons and things that that brings. Um, so just if you're hearing this podcast and you don't mind just lifting up some prayers for the young people going back into the schools, that they're safe. Um, and for those that may not have as much as we do, that we're in a added attitude of gratitude and staying in that atmosphere of, of generous giving as well. Yeah, that's a really good reminder just to be prayerful about this is a season of transition for for youth, especially. I mean, all of us who are connected to youth in that. And, and I'm sure lots of people for different reasons, but specifically like this is that cycle and it can have a lot of um, deep and, and hard feelings for, for kids, especially like my younger daughter transitioning into high school. Like that's a huge thing or, or kids who are moving from one place to another, or a lot of, um, especially kids experiencing, um, some things that might make them more vulnerable, like poverty, food insecurity, or homelessness. Like that's, it makes these transitions even that much more pronounced. So yeah, I mean, to be in prayer for that, knowing that we serve a God who, who loves, um, all of these kids that they bear his image and, and just to keep remembering that that's a good reminder. Yes. And so we will transition at this time um, to our guest, Jonathan Long, who you'll hear more about in just a few moments. Awesome. Thanks. everyone. Thank you for joining us today is co-host Ivy of the Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. And today we are here with a very special guest. And yes, that is very biased on my end um, because we are here with my husband, Jonathan. Um, And so we've on a few different episodes um, started with an introduction question to introduce yourself, but also to tell us what posters you had on your wall as a child or growing up. Thank you um, for giving me this opportunity. Um, my name's Jonathan Long. And as far as that question about the posters, I had a ton. I had a Michael Jordan poster, a bunch of, um, a few Jay-Z ones, a couple Beyonce, 50 cent uh definitely um so that was like the era like my wall was all like hip-hop and sports awesome awesome so you know obviously this space for those of us those of you that have tuned in with us before um know that this is a space where we talk about a lot of different things that are happening in our community or areas of justice that we as an organization are focusing on and as we're Entering into the month of September, we thought, what better of a time than to talk about education? And so, Jonathan, can you tell us about your work and maybe a little bit about your journey of how you came to where you are today? Um, yes, I can. Um, so right now, I'm currently the Dean of Students at a charter um, high school in Boston. I'm very excited. Um, this is my first year. Um, I just started. We actually started last Monday. So we actually have a week ahead of BPS. Um, I'm a former Boston Public School educator as well. I was in BPS for nine years, special education um, assistant teacher for five years at the Mather Elementary. And then I was also um, a substitute teacher for three years. And then for one year, I was a security paraprofessional at the Holmes Elementary School. 
and how I became um how I became an educator, I would say education found me. I didn't find education. I was actually doing an internship when I was going to get my master's degree um in, from Cambridge College in education. And it was working with um boys, ninth graders um at West Roxbury High School. And I realized that they started to take a liking to me. They started to like trust and, and were able to like come to me like on a weekly basis. And it just made me go, well, this is my internship. Why not try to turn this into a job? So then the next year I ended up being a substitute teacher at West Roxbury High School. And that's how my career in education just got skyrocketed. Awesome. And so how does your faith inform the work that you're doing in education? I say um, my faith is my foundation. Without God, I'm nothing. So I try to bring that into the um, into the areas, whatever, any school or environment that I'm working in. Just try to be the light and love in every situation, um, every school. Be patient, be compassionate, and just um, try to be kind. Um, one of the things is, Every student um needs to believe that the educators in the building believe in them. And I do because I know God believes in all of us. And I know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So that's how I look at my students, their families, and the educators. So I just try to treat everyone with a smile and just make sure the days go a little bit better than, than they were if I wasn't in the building. You know, you've had various positions in the field of education, as you mentioned. And, you know, we as people of color also notice the disproportionate measures in the education system. And you've said before, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so when you hear the term education justice, what comes to mind for you? That's a very loaded question. Um, when I think of education justice, I think of the fact that first and foremost, there's not a lot of black male classroom teachers, as you were just saying. I was working for an organization called He Is Me Institute, and one of our main goals was to recruit, retain, and retire black male classroom teachers because nationwide the percentage is only 1.7%. We know that a lot of the schools that we see and I work in are predominantly black students that we serve. And one of the things is, like I like your quote, you cannot be what you do not see. So how can students want to become educators if they don't see us in those buildings, in those spaces? I also think about metro schools versus public schools and the fact that the resources, as far as financial resources that are allocated to the metro students and students in the suburban areas versus students in the cities, the inadequate books and teachers who care and just tools go to the schools where there's no air conditioners. So it's a lot of things where it's just an injustice and it. it's a disservice to our students of color. And I know you have a background as well in criminal justice. And there's a term called the school to prison pipeline that I became familiar with probably about a decade ago as I first started working with, you know, systems involved youth working in a residential program that also had, um, you know, a day program for education. And so those of you just to, you know, preface this conversation a little bit, I wanted to talk and share actually from an article that I was reading on the U.S. News. It says that children who attend schools with high suspension rates are more likely to be arrested and jailed as adults, especially Black and Hispanic boys. 
according to research that shines a spotlight on the school-to-prison pipeline. Data have long shown that Black and Hispanic students experience suspension and expulsion at much higher rates than white students, and that as adults, they're also disproportionately represented in prison systems. And while we research, excuse me, shows a correlation between high levels of education and low levels of criminal activity, there's little evidence on the role that individual schools can play in their students' future. However, researchers researchers from Boston University, the University of Colorado Boulder, and Harvard University sought to find whether a casual link exists between students who experience strict school discipline and being arrested or incarcerated as an adult. And their findings showed that early um, censure, I believe I'm saying that word properly, of school misbehavior causes increase in adult crime. And so that is, in fact, the school-to-prison pipeline. So what is your familiarity, your knowledge, your experience with this term or this concept of the school-to-prison pipeline? Funny that you asked that. I was actually on a committee um, this past year where one of the things was to tackle the school-to-prison pipeline and how are we able to eradicate one, the terminology, but two, the statistics that show high high penalization for behaviors in schools end up turning out to these students becoming criminals down the line. I think one of the things that we can do is to stop penalizing the behaviors so much, like you said, with high suspension rates, and start to model the behaviors that we actually want to see with our students. I think that is another reason why there needs to be more Black male educators in the classrooms and in the school settings. So then we can be able to model the correct way for our students to be able to act and interact with one um, with each other. Another thing that I think Black males make a difference working in these environments is to be able to teach our youth effective communication tools. So one of the things you see, they say that negative behavior is still a form of communication. So as long as if we see it, we can be able to teach. This is the way how you are supposed to act if this happens again. So now all we're really doing is sharpening the students' toolkits so when these situations arise. A lot of the things, too, schools and the structuralizations, forcing the kids to wear uniforms, forcing the kids to stay in lines, that definitely makes students feel a certain way. And we know that stigma kind of sticks with their mind um, and it follows them throughout their childhood and sadly into their adulthood. We have to really break that terminology. We have to kind of stop using it if we can. Yeah. And it's interesting when you mention, you know, the regiment of, you know, doing things in a straight line and in the orderliness um, and structure of certain environments. You know, I'm very used to working in the juvenile justice system and know and can see, you know, in my head as you're mentioning that, how certain things play out. And then also, you know, the labeling theories that they talk about in 
in criminal justice as well. So, you know, you're constantly getting in trouble in school. You may be truant in certain things and you're labeled as a a troubled youth. And if you're getting suspended or expelled and you're no longer in the school system or in the classroom during the day, and, you know, your parents are at work or what have you, how that pushes you out into, you know, the community. And so you have this net where the school is supposed to, you know, being support, be supportive to you. But if you don't feel supported in the school and maybe acting out behaviorally due to certain traumas or things you're experiencing in the home or in your community, but the school system is not there to hold you, you know, the next thing that would be holding you would be either the Department Department of Children and Families or, you know, the Department of Youth Services. And so that's kind of the funnel to the school to prison pipeline that I have seen. And so you mentioned different ways in which we can communicate and work with young people. So what is social emotional learning and how does that play out in the school systems? Social emotional learning is a term that really took off, I would say, in the past six to seven years, where now schools are really trying to focus on the holistic student. So now the social-emotional learning factor is thinking about the student's mental health and thinking about their self-identity, their social awareness, their self-awareness. These are the things I would say they were not a focal point when I was growing up and going to school. <laughs> I'm still going to be aging myself. But the students now are now having the opportunity to learn who they are. So now when you learn who you are, you actually get to know your purpose, your why, and now it allows the students to be able to grow. And I think that's why social emotional learning is a key factor in a lot of the schools. And I think if it was taught a lot sooner in the schools, then the prison systems would not be as high rates of black males and brown boys and brown males and then but there'd also be lower recidivism rates because now these students will actually know who they are why they are why with their purposes and why they're doing things so once they have a negative behavior they have a male to show them this is why you cannot act this way because it has consequences and we know the consequences for our students unfortunately lead to the penal system So we mentioned, you know, social emotional learning. In addition to that, what are some significant factors that affect the achievement of culturally diverse students in schools? I think one of the things that really affects that achievement of culturally diverse students is being able to have teachers that look like the students that they're serving. And that's something that has really been a real focal point of teachers nowadays in schools is to be able to get students, I mean, get teachers who look like their students. That really helps with linguistic, um, when when linguistic matters, when it comes to the students, understanding some of the language, some of where the students are coming from, the type of foods they like. Also, making the lesson plans relevant to the students that look like the teachers, I think that's something that's very, um, is, is a huge proponent to just also engagement within the students. When the students see teachers that look like them or talk like them, it's going to make them perk up and want to really be engaged in that lesson plan. 
understanding a student and understanding where they come from is a is a way to build that trust and rapport early on as well within not just yourself but with the student. Yeah, that's very interesting that you mentioned that. And although, you know, I'm not in the field of education, there's certain portions of my role um, in the juvenile justice system where I may be teaching, say, life skills, for example. And I strongly believe in the power of relational equity and sharing, you know, certain things about my experience or just in that place of vulnerability, mentioning, you know, if I don't know something and I'm not just there, you know, as the superior person, but emphasizing, you know, a state of humility and that I'm able to learn from my clients. And so, I I would say, or from you know what I'm hearing you say, is that a, a participatory environment in the school system would also be largely beneficial. Yes, that definitely is something that would be beneficial to not only just the school system, but also the communities that we um, serve and have these schools in as well. I you know have really enjoyed this conversation. You know. We are in a time where shootings that happen in schools, Mm -hmm. it seems like more frequently than certainly when I was growing up. Um, And, you know, we want our schools to be an environment where our children are loved, that they feel safe. Um, and that they can grow and thrive, as you mentioned, into their purpose, into who God has called them to be, whether, you know, Christianity is their faith or not, knowing that, you know, we all have a purpose in this world and have certain gifts and talents that we are to bring forth. And not only just being in an atmosphere of prayer um, during this conversation for all of the youth and the teachers, you know, that are entering back into the classroom and going into the school building. Um, but as we come to a close of our conversation today, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with listeners today or any resources that you would like to highlight? There are, yes, the one thing I would definitely want to leave your listeners with is there are no bad students. Students might exhibit some negative behaviors, but that's why we are there as adults to teach them the correct way to behave, not to penalize them for those behaviors and to over discipline them for the behaviors, but to now show them the proper way to not only exhibit this behavior, but now effectively communicate your emotions and your feelings in that moment in which you had an outburst. And I think that's really something that really just makes a difference of just growing with your students. Also, like you said, the transparency as being adults working with our students, saying sorry if you make a mistake or I apologize. There's nothing wrong with that. We expect that a lot of times from our students. Why can't we do the same? So just, I just really thank you for having me on this episode. And I just really just look forward to listening to it and just hopefully being on some other ones in the future. Yes, absolutely. I know we've had many conversations about being a guest on our podcast. And as I mentioned in the beginning, 
what better opportunity or season to have you here today um, than to talk about education. And, you know, this episode is hot off the press as it's airing just hours after it's been recorded, which is not always the norm. Um, But we thank you all for listening today and look forward to various conversations in the future, whether that relates to education, justice, um, climate change, or what have you. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you all have a great blessed day.